Chapter forty three of Framley Parsonage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Framley Parsonage by Anthony Trollope. Chapter forty three. Is she not insignificant? And now a month went by at Framley without any increase of comfort to our friends there and also without any absolute development of the ruin which had been daily expected at the parsonage. Sundry letters had reached Mr. Robarts from various personages acting in the Tozer interest, all of which he referred to Mr. Curling of Barchester. Some of these letters contained prayers for the money, pointing out how an innocent widow lady had been induced to invest her all on the faith of Mr. Robarts's name, and was now starving in a garret with her three children, because Mr. Robarts would not make a good his own undertakings but the majority of them were filled with threats. Only two days longer would be allowed, and then the sheriff's officers would be enjoined to do their work. Then one day of grace would be added, at the expiration of which the dogs of war would be unloosed. These, as fast as they came, were sent to Mr. Curling, who took no notice of them individually, but continued his endeavour to prevent the evil day. The second bill Mr. Robarts would take up, such was Mr. Curling's proposition, and would pay by two instalments of £250 each, the first in two months, and the second in four. If this were acceptable to the Tozer interest, well. If it were not, the sheriff's officers must do their worst, and the Tozer interest must look for what it could get. The Tozer interest would not declare itself satisfied with these terms, and so the matter went on. During which the roses faded from to-day to-day on the cheeks of Mrs. Robarts, as under such circumstances may easily be conceived. In the meantime Lucy still remained at Hogglestock, and had there become absolute mistress of the house. Poor Mrs. Crawley had been at death's door. For some days she was delirious, and afterwards remained so weak as to be almost unconscious. But now the worst was over, and Mr. Crawley had been informed that as far as human judgment might pronounce, his children would not become orphans, nor would he become a widower. During these weeks Lucy had not once been home, nor had she seen any of the Framley people. Why should she incur the risk of conveying infection for so small an object, as she herself argued, writing by letters, which were duly fumigated before they were opened at the parsonage? So she remained at Hogglestock, and the Crawley children, now admitted to do all the honours of the nursery, were kept at Framley. They were kept at Framley, although it was expected from day to day that the beds on which they lay would be seized for the payment of Mr. Sarby's debts. Lucy, as I have said, became mistress of the house at Hogglestock, and made herself absolutely ascendant over Mr. Crawley. Jellies and broth and fruit and even butter came from Lufton Court, which she displayed on the table, absolutely on the cloth before him, and yet he bore it. I cannot say that he partook of these delicacies with any freedom himself, but he did drink his tea when it was given to him, although it contained Framley cream. And had he known it, Bahia itself from the Framley chest. In truth, in these days he had given himself over to the dominion of this stranger, and he said nothing beyond, Well, well, with two uplifted hands, when he came upon her as she was sewing the buttons on to his own shirts, sewing on the buttons and perhaps occasionally applying her needle elsewhere, not without utility. He said to her at this period very little in the way of thanks. Some protracted conversations they did have, now and again, during the long evenings. 
but even in these he did not utter many words as to their present state of life. It was on religion chiefly that he spoke, not lecturing her individually, but laying down his ideas as to what the life of a Christian should be, and especially what should be the life of a minister. "'But though I can see this, Miss Robarts,' he said, "'I am bound to say that no one has fallen off so frequently as myself. "'I have renounced the devil and all his works, "'but it is by word of mouth only, by word of mouth only. "'How shall a man crucify the old Adam that is within him, "'unless he throw himself prostrate in the dust "'and acknowledge that all his strength is weaker than water?' "'To this, often, as it might be repeated, "'she would listen patiently.' "'comforting him by such words as her theology could supply. "'But then, when this was over, "'she would again resume her command "'and enforce from him a close obedience to her domestic behests. "'At the end of the month, Lord Lufton came back to Framley Court. "'His arrival there was quite unexpected, "'though, as he pointed out when his mother expressed some surprise, "'he had returned exactly at the time named by him before he started.' "'I need not say, Ludovic, how glad I am to have you,' said she, looking to his face and pressing his arm. "'The more so, indeed, seeing that I hardly expected it.' He said nothing to his mother about Lucy the first evening, although there was some conversation respecting the Robarts family. "'I am afraid Mr. Robarts has embarrassed himself,' said Lady Lufton, looking very seriously. "'Rumours reach me which are most distressing. I have said nothing to anybody as yet, not even to Fanny.' "'but I can see in her face, and hear in the tones of her voice, "'that she is suffering some great sorrow.' "'I know all about it,' said Lord Lufton. "'You know all about it, Ludovic?' "'Yes, it is through that precious friend of mine, Mr. Sarby of Chaldicotes. "'He has accepted bills for Sarby. "'Indeed he told me so.' "'What business had he at Chaldicotes? "'What had he to do with friends such as that? "'I do not know how I am to forgive him.' "'It was through me that he became acquainted with Sarby. "'You must remember that, mother.' "'I do not see that that is any excuse. "'Is he to consider that all your acquaintances "'must necessarily be his friends also? "'It is reasonable to suppose that you in your position "'must live occasionally with a great many people "'who are altogether unfit companions for him as a parish clergyman. "'He will remember this, and he must be taught it. "'What business had he to go to Gatherham Castle?' "'He got his stall at Barchester by going there.' "'He would be much better without his stall, and Fanny has the sense to know this. "'What does he want with two houses? "'Prebendal stalls are for older men than he, "'for men who have earned them, and who at the end of their lives want some ease. "'I wish all my heart that he had never taken it.' Six hundred a year has its charms all the same,' said Lufton, "'getting up and strolling out of the room.' "'If Mark really be in any difficulty,' he said, later in the evening, "'we must put him on his legs.' "'You mean pay his debts?' "'Yes, he has no debts except these acceptances of Sarbis. "'How much would it be, Ludovic?' "'Oh, a thousand pounds, perhaps, more or less. "'I'll find the money, mother. "'Only I shan't be able to pay you quite as soon as I intended.' "'Whereupon his mother got up, and throwing her arms round his neck, "'declared that she would never forgive him "'if he ever said a word more about her little present to him. "'I suppose there is no pleasure a mother can have more attractive "'than giving away her money to an only son.' "'Lucy's name was first mentioned at breakfast the next morning. "'Lord Lufton had made up his mind to attack his mother on the subject early in the morning "'before he went up to the parsonage. 
But, as matters turned out, Miss Robarts's doing were necessarily brought under discussion without reference to Lord Lufton's special aspirations regarding her. The fact of Mrs. Crawley's illness had been mentioned, and Lady Lufton had stated how it had come to pass that all the Crawley's children were at the parsonage. "'I must say that Fanny has behaved excellently,' said Lady Lufton. "'It was just what might have been expected from her, and indeed,' she added, speaking in an embarrassed tone, "'so has Miss Robarts. Miss Robarts has remained at Hogglestock and nursed Mrs. Crawley through the whole.' "'Remained at Hogglestock through the fever?' exclaimed his lordship. "'Yes, indeed,' said Lady Lufton. "'And is she there now?' "'No, yes. I am not aware that she thinks of leaving just yet.' "'Then I say that it is a great shame, a, a scandalous shame.' "'But, Ludovic, it was her own doing.' "'Oh, yes, I understand. But, but why should she be sacrificed? Were there no nurses in the country to be hired, but that she must go and remain there for a month at the bedside of a pestilent fever? There is no justice in it.' "'Justice, Ludovic? I don't know about justice. But there was great Christian charity. Mrs. Crawley has probably owed her life to Miss Robarts.' "'Has she been ill? Is she ill? I insist upon knowing whether she is ill. I shall go over to Hogglestock myself immediately after breakfast.' To this Lady Lufton made no reply. If Lord Lufton chose to go to Hogglestock, she could not prevent him. She thought, however, that it would be much better that he should stay away. He would be quite as open to the infection as Lucy Robarts, and, moreover, Mrs. Crawley's bedside would be as inconvenient a place as might be selected for any interview between two lovers.' Lady Lufton felt at the present moment that she was cruelly treated by circumstances with reference to Miss Robarts. Of course, it would have been her part to lessen, if she could do so without injustice, that high idea which her son entertained of the beauty and worth of the young lady. But unfortunately she had been compelled to praise her and to load her name with all matter of eulogy. Lady Lufton was essentially a true woman, and not even with the object of carrying out her own views in so important a matter would she be guilty of such deception as she might have practised by simply holding her tongue? But nevertheless, she could hardly reconcile herself to the necessity of singing Lucy's praises. After breakfast Lady Lufton got up from her chair, but hung about the room without making any show of leaving. In accordance with her usual custom, she would have asked her son what he was going to do, but she did not dare so inquire now. Had he not declared only a few minutes since whither he would go? "'I suppose I shall see you at lunch,' at last she said. "'At lunch? Well, I don't know. Look here, mother. What am I to say to Miss Robarts when I see her?' And he leaned with his back against the chimney-piece as he interrogated his mother. "'What are you to say to her, Ludovic?' "'Yes, what am I to say, as coming from you? Am I to tell her that you will receive her as your daughter-in-law?' "'Ludovic, I have explained all that to Miss Robarts herself.' "'Explain what?' "'I have told her that I did not think that such a marriage would make either you or her happy.' "'And why have you told her so? Why have you taken upon yourself to judge for me in such a matter as though I were a child? Mother, you must unsay what you have said.' Lord Lufton, as he spoke, looked fully into his mother's face, and he did so not as though he were begging for her a favour but issuing to her a command. She stood near him, with one hand on the breakfast-table, gazing at him almost furtively, not quite daring to meet the full view of his eye. There was only one thing on earth which Lady Lufton feared, 
and that was her son's displeasure. The sun of her earthly heaven shone upon her through the medium of his existence. If she were driven to quarrel with him, as some ladies of her acquaintance were driven to quarrel with their sons, the world to her would be over. Not but what facts might be so strong as to make it absolutely necessary that she should do this. As some people resolve that, under certain circumstances, they will commit suicide, so she could see that, under certain circumstances, she must consent even to be separated from him. She would not do wrong, not that which she knew to be wrong, even for his sake. If it were necessary that all her happiness should collapse and be crushed in ruin around her, she must endure it, and wait God's time to relieve her from so dark a world. The light of the sun was very dear to her, but even that might be purchased at too dear a cost. "'I told you before, mother, that my choice was made, and I asked you then to give your consent. You have now had time to think about it, and therefore I have come to ask you again. I have reason to know that there will be no impediment to my marriage if you will frankly hold out your hand to Lucy.' The matter was altogether in Lady Lufton's hands. But— Fond as she was of power, she absolutely wished that it were not so. Had her son married without asking her, and then brought Lucy home as his wife, she would undoubtedly have forgiven him. As much as she might have disliked the match, she would ultimately have embraced the bride, but now she was compelled to exercise her judgment. If he married imprudently, it would be her doing. How was she to give her expressed consent to that which she believed to be wrong? "'Do you know anything against her, any reason why she should not be my wife?' continued he. "'If you mean as regards her moral conduct, certainly not,' said Lady Lufton. "'But I could say as much as that in favour of a great many young ladies whom I should regard as very ill-suited for such a marriage.' "'Yes, some might be vulgar, some might be ill-tempered, some might be ugly, others might be burdened with disagreeable connections. I can understand that you should object to a daughter-in-law under any of these circumstances.' But none of these things can be said of Miss Robarts. I defy you to say that she is not in all respects what a lady should be. But her father was a doctor of medicine. She is the sister of a parish clergyman. She is only five feet two in height, and so uncommonly brown. Had Lady Lufton dared to give a catalogue of her objections, such would have been its extent and nature. But she did not dare to do this. I cannot say, Ludovic, that she is possessed of all that you should seek in a wife. Such was her answer. Do you mean that she has not got money? No, not that. I should be very sorry to see you making money your chief object, or indeed any essential object. If it chanced that your wife didn't have money, no doubt you would find it a convenience. But pray understand me, Ludovic. I would not for a moment advise you to subject your high happiness to such a necessity as that. It is not because she is without fortune. "'Then why is it, at breakfast you were singing her praises and saying how excellent she is?' "'If I were forced to put my objection into one word, I should say—' Then she paused, hardly daring to encounter the frown which was already gathering itself on her son's brow. "'You would say what?' said Lord Lufton, almost roughly. "'Don't be angry with me, Ludovic. All that I think—' and all that I say on this subject I think and say with only one object, that of your happiness. What other motive can I have for anything in this world?' And then she came close to him and kissed him. 
"'But tell me, mother, what is this objection? "'What is this terrible word that is to sum up the list of all poor Lucy's sins "'and prove that she is unfit for married life?' "'Ludovic, I did not say that. You know that I did not. "'What is the word, mother?' "'And then at last Lady Lufton spoke it out. "'She is insignificant. "'I believe her to be a very good girl, "'but she is not qualified to fill the high position to which you would exalt her.' "'Insignificant?' "'Yes, Ludovic, I think so.' "'Then, mother, you do not know her. "'You must permit me to say that you are talking of a girl whom you do not know. "'Of all the epithets of opprobrium which the English language could give you, "'that would be nearly the last which she would deserve.' "'I have not intended any opprobrium.' "'Insignificant. "'Perhaps you do not quite understand me, Ludovic.' "'I know what insignificant means, mother.' "'I think that you would not worthily fill the position which your wife should take in the world.' "'Oh, I understand what you say. "'She would not do you honour at the head of your table.' "'Ah, I understand. "'You want me to marry some bouncing Amazon, some pink and white giantess of fashion, "'who would frighten the little people into their proprieties.' "'Oh, Ludovic, you are intending to laugh at me now.' I was never less inclined to laugh in my life. Never, I can assure you. And now I am more certain than ever that your objection to Miss Robarts arises from your not knowing her. You will find, I think, that when you do know her, she was as well able to hold her own as any lady of your acquaintance, I, and to maintain her husband's position too. I can assure you that I shall have no fear of her on that score. I think, dearest, that perhaps you hardly— I think this, mother— that in such a matter as this I must choose for myself. I have chosen, and I now ask you, as my mother, to go to her and bid her welcome. Dear mother, I will own this, that I should not be happy if I thought that you did not love my wife. These last words he said in a tone of affection that went to his mother's heart, and then he left the room. Poor Lady Lufton, when she was alone, waited till she heard her son's steps retreating through the hall, and then betook herself upstairs to her customary morning work. She sat down at last as though about so to occupy herself, but her mind was too full to allow of her taking up her pen. She had often said to herself, in days which were to her not as yet long gone by, that she would choose a bride for her son, and that then she would love the chosen one with all her heart. She would dethrone herself in favour of this new queen, sinking with joy into her dowage estate, in order that her son's wife might shine with the greater splendour. The fondest daydreams of her life had all had reference to the time when her son should bring home a new Lady Lufton, selected by herself from the female excellence of England, and in which she might be the first to worship her new idol. But could she dethrone herself for Lucy Robarts? Could she give up her chair of state in order to place thereon the little girl from the parsonage? Could she take to her heart, and treat with absolute loving confidence, with the confidence of an almost idolatrous mother, that little chit, who a few months since had sat awkwardly in one corner of her drawing-room, afraid to speak to any one? And yet it seemed that it must come to this, to this or else those daydreams of hers would in no wise come to pass. She sat herself down, trying to think whether it were possible that Lucy might fill the throne, 
for she had begun to recognise it as probable that her son's will would be too strong for her. But her thoughts would fly away to Griselda Grantly. In her first and only matured attempt to realise her daydreams, she had chosen Griselda for her queen. She had failed there, seeing that the fates had destined Miss Grantly for another throne, for another and a higher one as far as the world goes. She would have made Griselda the wife of a baron, but fate was about to make that young lady the wife of a marquis. Was there cause of grief in this? Did she really regret that Miss Grantly, with all her virtues, would be made over to the house of Hartletop? Lady Lufton was a woman who did not bear disappointment lightly, but nevertheless she did almost feel herself to have been relieved from a burden when she thought of the termination of the Lufton-Grantly marriage treaty. What if she had been successful, and after all the prize had been other than she had expected? She was sometimes prone to think that that prize was not exactly all that she had once hoped. Griselda looked the very thing that Lady Lufton wanted for a queen, but how would a queen reign who trusted only to her looks. In that respect it was perhaps well for her that destiny had interposed. Griselda, she was driven to admit, was better suited to Lord Dumbello than to her son. But still, such a queen as Lucy! Could it ever come to pass that the lieges of the kingdom would bow the knee in proper respect before so puny a sovereign? And then there was that feeling which, in still higher quarters, prevents the marriage of princes with the most noble of their people. Is it not a recognised rule of these realms, that none of the blood-royals should raise to royal honours those of the subjects who are by birth unroyal? Lucy was a subject of the House of Lufton, in that she was the sister of the parson, and a resident denizen of the parsonage. Presuming that Lucy herself might do for queen, granted that she might have some faculty to reign, the crown having been duly placed on her brow, how then about that clerical brother near the throne? Would it not come to this, that there would no longer be a queen at Framley? And yet she knew that she must yield. She did not say so to herself. She did not as yet acknowledge that she must put out her hand to Lucy, calling her by name as her daughter. She did not absolutely say as much to her own heart, not as yet. But she did begin to bethink herself of Lucy's high qualities, and to declare to herself that the girl, if not fit to be a queen, was at any rate fit to be a woman, that there was a spirit within that body, insignificant though the body might be, Lady Lufton was prepared to admit, that she had acquired the power, the chief of all powers in this world, of sacrificing herself for the sake of others, that too was evident enough, that she was a good girl, in the usual acceptation of the word good, Lady Lufton had never doubted. She was ready-witted to prompt in action, gifted with a certain fire. It was that gift of fire which had won for her, so unfortunately, Lord Lufton's love. It was quite possible for her also to love Lucy Robarts. Lady Lufton admitted that to herself. But then, who could bow the knee before her, and serve her as a queen? Was it not a pity that she should be so insignificant?' But nevertheless, we may say that as Lady Lufton sat that morning in her own room for two hours without employment, the star of Lucy Robarts was gradually rising in the firmament. After all, love was the food chiefly necessary for the nourishment of Lady Lufton, the only food absolutely necessary. She was not aware of this herself, nor probably would those who knew her best have so spoken of her. 
They would have declared that family pride was her daily pabulum, and she herself would have said so too, calling it, however, by some less offensive name. Her son's honour and the honour of her house. Of those she would have spoken as the things dearest to her in this world. And this was partly true, for had her son been dishonoured, she would have sunk with sorrow into the grave. But the one thing necessary to her daily life was the power of loving those who were near to her. Lord Lufton, when he left the dining-room, intended at once to go up to the parsonage, but he first strolled round the garden in order that he might make up his mind what he would say there. He was angry with his mother, having not had the wit to see that she was about to give way and yield to him, and he was determined to make it understood that in this matter he would have his own way. He had learned that which it was necessary that he should know as to Lucy's heart, and such being the case, he would not conceive it possible that he should be debarred by his mother's opposition. "'There is no son in England love his mother better than I do,' he said to himself. "'But there are some things which a man cannot stand. She would have married me to that block of stone if it were a letter. And now, because she is disappointed there, insignificant. I don't know if my life heard anything so absurd, so untrue, so uncharitable, so—' "'She'd like me to bring a dragon home, I suppose.' would serve a right if I did, some creature that would make the house intolerable to her. "'She must do it, though,' he said again, "'or she and I will quarrel.' And then he turned off towards the gate, preparing to go to the parsonage. "'My lord, have you heard what's happened?' said the gardener, coming to him at the gate. The man was out of breath and almost overwhelmed by the greatness of his own tidings. "'No, I've heard nothing. What is it?' The bailiffs have taken possession of everything at the parsonage. End of chapter forty three. Recording by Simon Evers.